Good morning. <laughs> Boy, I miss those Baptist church days. I'm going to say it because... Uh, Pastor Grogan and Pastor Dunnigan, boy, he'd come up here and say good morning. If he didn't hear a hearty good morning, he'd teach for an hour and a half. And I know you guys don't want me to do that. So good morning. God has given you breath to see another day that is not promised to us. We shouldn't take these days for granted. We just buried a Good friend of mine, 21 years of age, 21. No man knows the day or the hour that Jesus will return. No man knows the day or the hour that he will call us home. We should be praising the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be living lives congruent to his teachings. And we can only do that by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. We finished the book of 1 Corinthians we're in the chapter of Hebrews. We might set in Hebrews for until Jesus returns. So read it carefully. Uh, a great book. I'm excited about it, even though we're only going to look at three verses this morning. I think it'll be good. You know, I pride myself on driving. I think I'm a pretty good driver. Don't ask my wife. Uh, and I'm always, by the grace of God, I have pretty good, still now, peripheral vision. So I can see some of you guys, sometimes you're behind me and what you're doing. And I said, look at J-Dove. He don't even know I'm watching him. And he's doing pretty good while I'm watching him. But I pride myself. I look. I tell people this all the time. I, I, I'm always watching. I might not say much, but I'm watching. I, I'm a people watcher. And, you know, as I'm driving a lot of times on the bumpers or the windows of automobiles, especially, I don't know why, well, I probably do know why, on minivans, there's always seemingly a sticker on there. If you look, research it, you, there's usually one there. And it reads, my kid made the honor roll. And, you know, I've seen that so many times, and <laughs> I'm not going to say this, but, uh, you know, I roll my eyes. Oh, come on. Probably in the first grade, made the honor roll. Second grade, made the honor roll. That's no big deal. I was making the honor roll back then, and I didn't get a sticker. But it's natural. We understand that. Little Junior has accomplished something very significant. And I recognize that sometimes. You can kind of quell that and make fun of it like I do because you're the parent. And you might just be a little biased by that. But sometimes your kids do accomplish things and that they are objectively great. That's when you feel like you know you ought to have the right to kind of say, well, you know, my kid has did something, did something significant. And as I was thinking about this, I'm, I think of Ron DeSantis. I wonder on the back of his parents' bumper sticker, he, he says, 
in Tallahassee. I'm the governor. My, my kid is the governor of Florida. And who knows, he could be the president, so they would have to change it. And I can see why that would be significant in their lives. But in the New Testament, as you read through these books, you get to the book of Hebrews, in which you discover real quickly God's extended bumper sticker, if you will, appraising the accomplishments of his great son. He's introduced in the very first verses as a son who has accomplished more than anyone could ever accomplish. As a matter of fact, he's praised in this text for the job that he holds. And I should be specific, these three jobs that he holds and the office that he carries out. And the father stands back through the pen of this unknown writer, and he says through the inspiration of the spirit, my son has done something incredible. And you ought to recognize what he's done. As a matter of fact, the proud father, if you will, of the son, Jesus Christ, makes it very clear that if we understand he is what he is and what he has accomplished, our lives are going to be changed because of it. You know, it reminds me of Luke chapter 24 when these men, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember that account? After Christ's resurrection, he's walking along with them, and the tragedy of this text is they don't know it's Jesus. And they begin to talk, and Jesus is walking with them, and they have this whole conversation with Christ without ever recognizing who he is until the end. They get to where they're going, and they sit down, and the scripture says their eyes were open, and they realize who they were talking to and that they had talked to each other after Jesus left. They said, weren't our hearts just burning within us? That's a tragedy. Can you imagine if those two on the road to Emmaus knew the entire time that Jesus Christ was walking with them? I think their conversation would have been a lot different. As a matter of fact, I think they would have taken advantage of that time. They had spent on that road walking with Christ. There would have been a less backbiting and gossiping going on on that road because they knew who Christ was and they knew what he was about. But listen up. They spent all that time without a real knowledge as they talked to him. I think the tragedy for a lot of us in our Christian life We'll go through years of the Christian life, and one day, our eyes will be opened because we will stand in his presence. We'll see him face to face, and we will understand with a new depth of profundity who Jesus is. And I think a lot of us are going to say, wow, we walked that road, and our hearts kind of you know, moved us within, but we really didn't recognize who he really was. 
As I said before, it's going to take us a little time to get through the book of Hebrews, but I think it will be impactful for us by the time we're done. I hope that you can look back and say, you know what? Because we've taken time to study this greatness of Christ in the book of Hebrews, we know a little bit more now about who we're walking with each day. And the person we pray to isn't just, you know, Jesus, our friend and our buddy and all of that kind of things we say, but he is someone significant. And because he's someone significant, God says to us in the pages of Hebrews, because of the role that he fulfills and he doesn't waste any time, you can tell the father is very proud. Right at the beginning in verse 1, he gets right into it and he says, you need to recognize the first important job that Jesus has. And you and I, we ought to be responsive to it. He says this in verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways, different ways, spoke in times past to the fathers, the prophets. And think, if you will, through the history of the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. God is speaking through all these prophets in different times and in different ways. We have the whole punctuation of God speaking through the prophets. But then it says in verse 2, in these last days, and that's a statement of finality there. God has really spoken now. He has spoken to us by his son. No names, no titles. He just wants you to know, hey, this is my bumper sticker. I'm proud of the guy. He's my son. And as a matter of fact, if you study the Old Testament, the office of the prophet, the person that speaks for God was always held as a great job. I mean, maybe it was one you wanted to do or maybe you didn't. I don't know. But it was one that you revered and you respected. Because when you talk to the prophet, whether it was Moses or Elijah, whether it was Jeremiah or Isaiah, you were talking face to face with someone who's going to tell you what God thinks. And that was always a very big deal because they spoke with authority. And if you wanted to know the mind of God on any matter, or what his commentary on our society is, or what he thinks of our culture, what he thinks of my life or my behavior, he'll let you know because he knows exactly what God thinks about those things. And he's going to tell you, and those words usually pierce your heart. Well, that was nothing here in the contrast of the first verse, where the Bible says all those prophets... They were speaking many times and many ways in the Old Testament, but now, guess what? Let me make it really clear, God is saying. God didn't send just a messenger. He sent his son. He's spoken to you through his son. And there's a sense of finality as Jesus speaks. He says, in these last days, that was 2,000 years ago. This is not the issue about, you know, was it just months away from the end time? It means in this final period of human existence, 
When God has said all that he's going to say in the scriptures, he's made it very clear he's spoken. He's pointing people's attention to his son, Jesus. We need to recognize, and Hebrews is going to tell us a lot more about it. That's why we want to take our time. I think it would be life-changing. Jesus speaks, starts out saying he's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God to us, and he does it in a unique role. And the job that he has is very unique. It's superior to any of the prophets of the Old Testament who were quite, if you think about it, they were quite impressive if you read their accounts. But the son, he speaks to you on behalf of the father, and it's the final word from heaven. No more to this book. If anybody says, hey, look, I found a scripture that's not in this canon right here, you know it's foolishness. And the good thing about God is he's always tried to be very clear. God is not trying to be mysterious as you, as you two would sing. Isn't that the group who said God is a mysterious God? He works in mysterious ways and all this. No, God wants to be clear. Matter of fact, If you keep your fingers in Hebrews chapter 1 and turn back to Deuteronomy 18, I want to show you God has always wanted you to look to his prophets, understanding then I want you to see that he always promised there's a great, great prophet coming, the elite prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 14 says this. Now, we've we've had the word prophet. We'll be talking about that for a minute. And that means in Hebrew, a mouthpiece, a spokesman, someone who speaks on behalf of God. It's sprinkled here and there a few different times in the scriptures, but in the book of Deuteronomy, we have a long and extended explanation throughout the book of Deuteronomy about God's special fraternity of people. This class of people that that are going to serve as the spokesperson for God, the prophets. And in Deuteronomy 18, it says, For these nations, God speaking, for these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, children of Israel, Yahweh your God has not appointed such for you. And you remember the context here. They're about to go into the promised land. And the promised land were filled with people who had rejected Yahweh, who created all the things they were saying were their gods, sports, entertainment, knowledge, all that paraphernalia, metaverse. They're not gods. And God says, you're going to go into their land. You're going to occupy the good land flowing with milk and honey. Just remember this when you go in now, guys. All those people, they're groping for a message from beyond. They want to hear from their creator, but they do it all in the wrong ways, sorcery and divination. I mean, they're reading their horoscopes in the Canaan times. You know, they're trying to know, asking their friends to conjure up the dead, whatever they're doing, but they're trying to seek a message from beyond. He says, as for you, man, Yahweh has not permitted you to do so. 
You're not to do that. Don't grope around and look for this mysterious word from God. It's not all that mysterious anyway. As a matter of fact, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Wink, wink. They should have understood that right then. I'm sure they, uh, Moses winked his eye when he said that. He says, from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. You're going to have people that look just like you, but they're going to stand in the history of the Old Testament, and they're going to speak for me, and they're going to speak clearly, and they're going to speak in your language, and it won't be mysterious, and you won't have to feel, and you won't have to grope around, and you won't have to meditate and look and, and light incense. All you have to do is listen to what the prophet is saying because they're speaking for me. And if you want to know what I think, guys, he says, listen up, listen to them. Matter of fact, that's how it was for you, right, nation of Israel. He says, back there on Mount Sinai, you ask Yahweh your God. Verse 16, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die, God speaking directly to them. Verse 17 says, and the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Those words, they start to build up to something grandiose and big. As a matter of fact, if you were thinking about this from a historic context, you think Moses is going to hand the baton off to Joshua of his prophesying to someone else. And he does that by the end of the book. But what's interesting is, these big words about this great ultimate prophet that's going to say everything that God wants him to say. No one, read the book of Joshua. We just finished Joshua. No one ever thought Joshua was the man. Matter of fact, they fought tooth and nail for Joshua not to be the man. So it wasn't a surprise. Matter of fact, turn to Deuteronomy 34 when Moses actually does hand off the baton to Joshua. Because Joshua would be the next leader of the people who would represent God to the people. Deuteronomy 34, 8 through 10, here's the divine commentary at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. There goes the baton passing. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses, since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. No one ever shown the mighty powers or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Well, I guess we'll have to wait for that elite prophet. And 1,400 years later, 
there was a prophet that stepped on the scene and he said, I just want to make it clear. I'm not just punctuating my speech with messages from God to you. Everything I say is what the Lord is trying to say to you. As a matter of fact, I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just the son of man. I'm the son of God. And when I speak, John chapter 5, John chapter 7 says, John 14, 10 says, the words Jesus speaking, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. He kept saying, I am speaking to you the very words of God. And if you disregard my words, God will hold you to account. Exactly what Moses said would happen in Deuteronomy 18. God had promised the ultimate prophet was coming. And if people didn't believe him for what he said, he turns to the crowd and he says, then look at my miracles, Jesus said, that I do. That was predicted. And in Deuteronomy 18 and 34, look at the things that I'm doing. I'm raising people from the dead. The blind see, the lame walk. Do you think maybe I'm the ultimate prophet that was spoken about in the law? And then if that wasn't enough, there was this divine job reference showed in Matthew 17. God saying, hey, look, everybody, this is my son. Everything he's going to say. John 4 says, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a mouth. All you guys, if you think when you get to heaven, you're going to be able to sit on God's lap or just kick back, it doesn't change. You might can try that with Jesus, but you can't try that with the Father. He stays a spirit. He says God is a spirit. He doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have a tongue. He doesn't have teeth. So he's going to use people to get that to happen. But one day he's going to send this elite prophet. And this elite person, everything he says is going to be what God commands. Matthew 17, 1. Now, after Jesus, now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, check out who comes, Moses and Elijah. What were their ministry? They were prophets. They were spokesmen for the Lord, appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter, as he can do, answered and said to Jesus, Lord, he called him Curios, Yahweh. It is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. These two prophets were the most miraculous prophets. Moses, turning, doing all of the, uh, the miracles he did. Elijah comes alone and almost succeeds him in miracles. And they're talking with Jesus. It says, while he was still speaking the Father. And we know, if you know anything about God, he doesn't doesn't get in a hurry. But he does right here. 
he interrupts Peter's error. He says, behold, this isn't a meeting about three great prophets here. You don't, you don't understand who this is. Moses and Elijah are nothing. They were playing in the minor leagues. Let me introduce you to the real spokesperson. He says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. He's not just a prophet in whom I am well pleased. And I love this. This was the carpenter of Nazareth. Hasn't did one miracle. Hasn't proclaimed his ministry yet. And the father said, I'm already well pleased with him. These fishermen, these were Jewish boys, grew up in the Sabbath school. They're going to listen to those dudes. They're going to listen to Elijah and Moses, Israeli prophets. But here's God saying, listen to Jesus. He is my son. He's not just the prophet. He's the elite prophet. See, you and I, we need to listen to him this morning. We need to listen to him carefully. I can, assure, I can assure you if we do that, we will be better if we did it. Because if we talk with Christ through our lives as we walk to our Emmaus or wherever we're headed, and we just treat him like, oh, give me some insight on this. Give me some wisdom. Give me some parenting tips. Give me a little insight about my marriage. Then we don't understand this is the son of God. When he speaks, he speaks for God. And when he opens his word and it's amped up for us in four quadraphonic sounds, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have all of these epistles. We have the emissaries from Acts to Revelation. When we have that book, the Bible in our pocket. We've got the words of God. God is speaking with finality through his son. And we need to pick that book up with a great deal of reverence and say, God is speaking here. If Moses, think of this, if Moses was resurrected and I brought him up here on, I'm not even going to say a Sunday morning, I'm going to say a Wednesday evening. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's good, Emily. Wednesday evening, this place would be packed. Not only would this place be packed, outside would be packed. And if Moses came up here and turned that little lamp into a snake, and then he turned around real quick and said, I've got something to say. If you didn't have a pad and a pen, you say, hold up, Moses, I'm going to get it and be ready to write. You'd catch writer's cramp listening to what Moses said. Well, I'm talking about a greater than Moses. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. We should be with ears perked up every time the Bible is open, every time you're reading it at home, and you should be taking it in. I'm not talking about the words on the page. I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about what God is saying as you read your Bible. 
the inspired word of God. We should have reverence for it. We should be taking notes when we open this Bible. Our ears should perk up while we're doing all of those things. This is God's son we're talking about. Listen to everything he says. And God's statement to you this morning is listen to him. Perk your ears up and just realize you've got to listen to him. We used to tell our kids, don't listen to everything your friends tell you. You've got to sort it out. Use your brain, Anthony. If Johnny jumps off a building, are you going to? But we don't have that same standard, when I, or you shouldn't have that same standard when your child walks into the house, when I'm going to talk to them. No need to use your brain then. Listen to me and do what I tell you to. We're your parents. You can't sit there and pick and choose what you're going to do. I'm speaking to you as a father. Sit down and listen to me. God says to children, listen to your parents. You, can't, you can talk to Tommy down the street, and I don't know half the stuff he says. You weigh it out, do what you want to. But when you come into my house, my kids, you can really leave your brain at the door. If I tell you something, you listen and you do it. I'm the mouthpiece. That's what the Bible says over my kids while they're kids. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to say, oh, daddy, I don't know. By that time, he'd be slapped anyway. Uh, That's just me. Oh, daddy, I don't know if that's right or that's wrong. Or boy, you don't have to know. Girl, you don't have to know. I know. That's the role a parent has. You can leave your brain at the door if you're my child at my house. I tell you what to do. I'm following the Lord. Now, you can take Johnny's advice when you're out there. But in the house, you're going to take my advice. I'm the prophet. I'm the mouthpiece. That's what God is saying here. And yet, after I said all of that, when it comes to our business, when it comes to how you raise your children, when it comes to discipline of your children, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to how your life should be, we look at Christ and say, just like we tell Tommy, if he was talking to us, I don't know if that's a good idea. I've heard that really doesn't work. I've heard that's not what I should do. I might lose clients if I do it your way, Lord. But the Bible says, listen to him. You just might miss eternal life if you don't. We don't have the luxury to pick and choose what we want to do or how we want to obey the Lord. We had better listen to Jesus' words. 
You can pull up Malachi. You can pull up Amos. You can dig into Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those prophets. And nothing compares to the finality and focus God wants us to have with his son, Jesus Christ. We should sit at our kitchen table or wherever with Bibles open and treat it with a little more respect. Not the book, not the pages, not the ink, not the print. Treat what God says with a little bit more respect. God is speaking to you. Jesus is our prophet. Listen to him. In the past, he spoke in a lot of ways, but now he's spoken to us by his son. And he goes on to explain a little bit more about the son, the middle of verse 2 and verse 3. He says, he has appointed, he has appointed heir of all things through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness, that Greek word brightness, apagasmus, and it's shining forth, a light shining forth from something. All of who the father is shines forth through that in the sun. The brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And then it says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. That's a big list of a characterization from the, the carpenter of Nazareth. There was another job that you could have in Israel that was the job of a regal power. It was a job of authority. It was a job of ownership. It was the ultimate job. When it comes to power and position in all of Israel, used almost 3,000 times in the Old Testament, that word is melech, the Hebrew word for king. And that was a big job to fill. There were all kinds of them, starting with Saul. Then you had David, uh, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, all the way down to the end. We had all of these kings, and they were there with their regal authority. And you and I, we, we really can't understand kings. We can't really identify with them because we've never met a king. I don't think so. And we don't have kings today, really. We got these people in Europe, which we call them kings and queens, but they're really these democracies and republics and chairmen and presidents, but we don't know really what a king is. If you walked into the presence of a king and the king didn't like the way you curtsied, you didn't curtsy long enough or well enough, he would just say, off with your head, you disrespected me. And there would be nothing no one in that region could do about it. He had complete and sovereign power. And God, after dealing with Saul, because Saul was a choice, again, of the people, he said, I'll give you a king since you want one. I'll give you a king after my own heart. And he installed David as the second king of Israel. I want to show you what a king should be about. Now, was David perfect? Read your Bibles. You know he wasn't. He says, I'm going to start you with something great, though. I'm going to start you with David. 2 Samuel 7 says he makes a promise with David. God does. It's a covenant, a unilateral 
unbreakable covenant. That's just, that's just how good God is. David hadn't done anything wonderful, great. But he says, I love you so much, David. I'm going to make a covenant with you, a promise that he makes David. And he says, listen, I'm going to bring you a great king, a king who will establish a kingdom that will last forever, David. And it's going to come through your loins, your line. You're just a prototype, just like Moses was as, as, as a prophet. But there's going to be a great king, David, that comes through your line. Of course, about a thousand years or so later, after David's life, here comes Gabriel showing up a little to a little peasant girl's home in Nazareth. And Gabriel starts quoting verses to Mary, verses from the Davidic covenant, verses that were reiterated by the prophet Isaiah saying, I want to tell you about this little baby you're going to have. Your little baby, he's going to sit on the throne of David. His father, Jesus, steps on the scene with the, you remember, the announcements of angels. And the mad guy who had come, they bow down and worship him. People who have this kind of power, this kind of resume, they're kings. Jesus is our king. And the book of Hebrews will show us that he's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate in charge. And God has said, here is the representative of power. And you know all of the Meleks, the kings of the old covenant, they were rough drafts, representations, and not equal representatives to you, Jesus. They were imperfect pictures of the representation of God. Was David perfect? No, he wasn't perfect. There was no Oriental king in all the texts of history that you could find any of their flaws written down. Go back and read the Assyrians, Annals, the Mesopotamian Annals. They would not put any wrongdoings down of their kings, those that were in charge. But God does. We know David flaws, a murderer and an adulterer. But God says, I'm going to put this down because I want them to know that you are flawed. And every king is flawed, except for the great king. Verse 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Go back up to verse 2 real quick. It says, he has appointed heir of all things. Circle that word heir. A heir, of course, is one who inherits. I told my kids, when I die, you're going to get my stuff. But not now, because you're my heir. You get what I have. This text says that Jesus, the great oritative representation of the supreme power of the universe, is heir, not of a little wooden cardboard box, not of a $500,000 home, he's heir of everything. He is leader by virtue of ownership. He's not only that, look at the phrase in verse 3b, it says, 
and upholding all things. This is what he does. By the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on, on high. He not only owns it, he keeps it running. And he not only keeps it running, what's the second phrase in the middle of verse 2? He's made it all. He made it, he owns it, and he sustains it. I'll never forget when I went over to this guy's house. It had to be. I'm sure he's not watching, so I should I'm not going to call his name. It had to be a thousand, a million dollar home. I mean, he, he, he was a builder, and he had built this house. He said, I always wanted to build my own house. I've laid it out just the way I wanted it, everything. It was immaculate. And you know, after we walked around the outside, he gets to the front door, and he takes his shoes off. What do you think I did? Yeah. I took my shoes off. Plush carpet, nice and everything. I'm walking around. He goes and he says, sit down on the sofa. I sit down on the sofa. He had a huge lazy boy, huge lazy boy chair. I just didn't go in and plop down on that chair. It's not my house, not my house. I didn't grab the remote control and start finding Alabama Crimson Tide. I did not do that. It's not my house. I don't just pick up the remote control. Whatever he did, I was getting my cues because that's his domain. That's not my domain. And so God is saying, everything that's made, I made it, I own it, and I sustain it. The, the, the bad thing about rebellious people, you can't outrun God's house because everything that's made is his. So we need to take deference in what we do in his house because you cannot go anywhere outside his house. And we ought to give him a little bit more respect. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express, express image of his person. Therefore, before you reach for that remote control, therefore, before I say there's 20 different genders, I need to listen to what the, the guy who owns the place said. And he says, there's only two. Don't get it twisted. So I'm going to ride with him. I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm going to ride with him. I don't care what, what they say because I'm living in his domain. And once again, I can't outrun his domain. And he owns everything. And he sustains everything. And he's the ruler of everything. Oh, you better. He's in charge. And you ought to give him respect that he deserves as the one in charge He's the Melek, and you better give him the deference and respect. Jesus is the ultimate king. And you know what? We need to honor him more. Honor him by the way we live. If he says, don't touch that, then don't touch it. If he says, follow my example, and when he comes into the living room and takes his shoes off, then you better do it. 
because he's in charge. I know you think you might be in charge. You might be over a few people at your company and you tell them what to do and you tell them what to do and you go home and you tell your kids and your husband and your wife what to do. God is in charge. He owns me, he sustains me, and he bought me. He's the king. You know when Nadab and Abihu, those two Old Testament priests, didn't give God his deference? We better approach God with honor, respect, and deference. And if you don't, you tread by your own peril. What about Ananias and Sapphira? two New Testament people who forgot the right way to approach the king. Here's here's the thing. God is a God of grace, which means that sometimes when we make mistakes that are worthy of death, he holds back the sentence of death and gives you a chance to get it right because both of these happen at the very beginning of the worship in the Old Testament and at the beginning of the very worship in the New Testament. God was gracious. We we should not be lax with God. It's his remote control. You can read that account about Nadab and Abihu in, in Leviticus 10. Aaron had to watch his children die, and he didn't say a word. Because God is always right. We might not like it, but God is always right. They didn't honor God with their gift. Neither did Ananias and Sapphira. They tried to fudge on what they had given the Lord. And in Acts, it says, Sapphira comes in. No, Ananias comes in and he falls down. Then Sapphira comes in and she falls down. That was in the New Testament. God, when we make mistakes, when we are rebellious, he gives us grace. But you can take all of your unsaved friends. You can take all of your unsaved people you work with. You can take all of those unsaved people and you can bet, you best believe one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And while we don't give him the deference that we should give him, the respect that we should give him, because we're rubbing shoulders at work with unsaved people, we go to school with unsaved people and they're not honoring and reverencing God. And it tends to uh, rub off on us. But I'm here to tell you this morning, God honors those that honor him. That's what he told, uh, gosh, Lord, help me out. That's what he told that prophet when he was laying back after his two sons had took the Ark of the Covenant in, what was his name? He was laying, Eli, thank you. That's what he told Eli. Eli, you should have been telling your boys the right way. Eli, you knew the right way. You should have, you should have been filling, uh, filling the boys with the words. And if they didn't want to do right, Eli, you should have kicked them out, Eli, because you, that would have given them more 
honor to me and that might would have turned their ways to me, Eli, but you pacified them. You said, go on and live the way you want to. Just don't leave my house. Just go on and do what you want to. I'll, I'll just suck it up and do what I have to do. And Yahweh tells Eli, who should have known, I honor those who honor me. God watches us. God is deserving of honor. And we should honor his son. I'm, I'm getting off track right now, but it's okay. I was telling Lydia, as I've been watching the news and the war that's going on, and I, and I see the people and the Israelis, and they're talking, and they say, oh, we're going to win the war. We're going to win the war. Uh, God, God, God. And I said, what breaks my heart, even these two uh, women that they just let go, they haven't got back to the United States yet. But they, they were talking to him. I haven't heard the word Jesus Christ one time. And, and that, that's not, it's not surprising, but it saddens me. It saddens me. Here, we know him. We're supposed to be living for him. And how many times do we bring his name up? How many times do we worship him and honor him and do all those things I'm talking about today? He hasn't did anything but save us from hell. He deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. That's what I'm talking about this morning. And then, because he's the monarch of the universe, he owns me. Once again, he sustains me, and he bought me. Oh, I'm sure we have, but... But God is a gracious God. He doesn't want you to continue in your lack of reverence for him. He doesn't want you to continue in your lack of honor for him. God is to be honored. He is a great God, and he will be honored. And that's what his whole bottom line is. He says, you're going to honor me. We don't want to walk the road, our road to Emmaus with Christ and not stop all the time and say, I want to just recognize you for who you are. You're a king. And the sad thing is we hang out with a bunch of people who don't. Hebrews 13, 15 says, therefore, by him, let us continually, that's frequently, offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's what we should be doing. You can do that every single day. Give honor to God. Because a lot of people treat him as less than a king. But he is the king. And one day we will see it. Matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, when he comes back, they said he's going to have a name on his thigh. Saying king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to get his due. Verse 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's one more job that Jesus fulfills in the book of Hebrews. And I'll really unpack it in chapter 13, but it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
They had respected offices. We just looked at the prophets. We just looked at the king. But we've got to have the priest. And I'll just put it like this. As the people would go to the temple, out of courts, when you would get in the temple, you had all the furnishings and all of the golden uh tables and all these things set up where you would give offerings for the silver trumpets, things you would put offerings in. And if you looked at all the furnishings, and if you were blessed enough to be a priest, you could go into the holy place and exchange the table, the showbread, table of showbread, the altar of incense, all of the gold there. And the high priest would have to tell them, because they probably said, hey, Bob, do you ever sit down? Bob was saying, there's no seat out here, and there's no seat especially in the most holy place. There was never a chair, not one chair, because a priest, especially the high priest, he had to work. He had to do the sacrifices, clean the altar, You had weekly sacrifices, daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, annual sacrifices. And then that day would come the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go in the holies of holy one time a year, fast, you couldn't eat anything, you had to pray all day. One time a year, the priest would go into the most holy place, the holies of holies, and he would be working. And there was, no, there was no table there. There was no chair there. That meant something. Because when Jesus Christ said on the cross, there was no more ceremonial sacrifices. When Jesus, he did the real deal. He gave his life for our sins. And when he said it was finished, we know what he did. He, he probably said, if I was Jesus, I would have said, where's my chair? Where's my chair? Well, he sits beside the Father up in heaven, our great high priest. (sighs) The blood of bulls and goats could never erase our sins. The Levitical drudgery, day in, day out. Moffat called it the Levitical drudgery, day in, day out, blood all on him for offering sacrifices. But it says, after Jesus purged our sins, he sat down. It's finished, you guys. The worship team can come up. It's finished. What we have to realize is that we can't work our way into heaven. If I blow it today, there's no requirements. There's not enough pavement or gravel that I can crawl on to an altar and say, God, forgive me. Jesus has paid it all. I ask him and truly, sincerely, when I ask, Lord, would you forgive me for doing this or doing that? He's faithful to forgive it. And then cleanse me of all righteousness. Jesus has sat down. Oh, he's a lot more than a prophet. Oh, he's a lot more than a priest. He's my savior. And I owe him deference. 
and he's going to get it. I hear Philippians say, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Real quick, I was at a funeral. A lot of young people there. And, I, and this is just me, I'm Victor. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. And, and I told them while I was there. And we were at the grave site, and it was, it was almost over by the time, but, but they were laughing, and they were joking, and they were talking about what they were going to do after the funeral. And I had my Bible in my hand, and I said, I want to read you something. This is a sobering statement. Ecclesiastes 4, I think. I think it's verse 6. It says, and the body, and the, as, as I threw this dirt on the ground, it says, and the body will go back to the dirt, and the spirit will go back to the one who gave it. That's sobering. What God is saying, you're going you're gonna to answer to me. I might be long and gracious. I might, I, don't think I wink at sin. Don't think I'm just up here. Oh, boys will be boys. Girls will be g- girls. He's a great bookkeeper. And he's saying, you're going to you're gonna come by my son. And you're going to give him his due. Because he hung on the cross for your sins. Nobody else did. While you're rah-rahing for this team or rah-rahing for this person or rah-rahing for this, honor my son. Honor him. When you don't want to forgive, you honor him and forgive anyway. And that's going to put a smile on his face. That's, then he's going to say, that's my son. He learned that from Pops. That's what he says. This is real business, you guys. I told him, we're all going to go the way of the earth unless Jesus comes back. We need to honor him. He's our great king. He's our great savior. I'm thankful for all the books, but Hebrews is special. Let's learn about Jesus. Not only learn about him, I pray that our hearts will be pliable to receive and say, Lord, I'm messed up in these ways. Lord, it's tough for me to forgive. Lord, I I, I tend to hold grudges. Lord, would you do a work in me? How could I ever hold a grudge when you don't hold one against me? I'm not holier than you. Help me bend my heart to your will. Help me live my life to your will. That's honoring you. Nothing else matters. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to do a work in us. None of us have arrived. We all have flaws. Lord, but I pray that we would bow our will to you as we learn of our great high priest, as we learn of our ultimate prophet, as we learn of our great king, as we learn of our sweet savior. May we, may our lives be transformed into the image of Jesus because we're sitting under the word and we're, and we're allowing your word to affect our hearts. 
How can we be grudgeful at anybody when you've did so much for us? Lord, I pray for those that are hurting and sick. I know you won't forget. You're going to minister to them, Lord. May we wait on you patiently. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our soon coming King, I believe. Amen.